Welcome into the Locked On Knicks podcast, Gavin Shaw, Alex Wolf, and we are joined by an incredible guest today, Alex. It's Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. He has a new book out called Bubble Ball. We'll talk to him about that in this episode, and then in a follow-up one, we get into a whole bunch of Knicks stuff. Yeah, and in, in this episode, it's so much fun talking about his experience being part of the NBA bubble last summer. So much inside intel, you know, what it was like for him going through the quarantine process, what it was like being so intimately involved with the players there and, you know, being so close to the action, having so much access to these players that he wouldn't normally get. Uh, Just kind of the effect that the bubble took on everybody himself, players included, and overall just kind of his thoughts on, on how the whole thing went, the social justice initiatives that were part of the bubble as well. All kinds of great discussions. We're going to get into it all next on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. And I think we see Willis coming out. There he comes. Right now. Starts with a five. Ewing for the win. Yes. Up, up left. Now fires it. He's good. And he's fouled. He's Anthony for three. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. This episode is brought to you by Locker Room. Download the app and join me this week, Thursday at 5.30 to get in on the action. Locker Room, changing the way we talk sports. I am Gavin Shaw, a play-by-play broadcaster in non-pandemic times, but during this ongoing apocalypse, just a meager podcast host. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Alex Wolf, editor-in-chief of the greatest Knicks website out there, The Strickland, and today... As promised, we have a very special guest, Ben Golliver, uh, the Washington Post's national NBA writer. And that's that's about as good as we've gotten credential-wise on this podcast, Ben. Uh, also, Ben, you, you host, as you know, and people are about to find out, uh, Locked On NBA podcast. We were just talking about it. You also host um, the Greatest of All Talk podcast with Andrew Sharp, former uh, Grantland and Sports Illustrated great. And uh, the reason we're having you on right now is because you have a new book coming out May 4th. It's called Bubble Ball. So welcome to the show, Ben Golliver, and we're, we're excited to uh, talk some hoops with you. Well, I'm glad to be here, but don't hype me up too much, guys. Come on now. You know, it, uh, it's not, nothing crazy out there. I'm just grinding out like you guys are one show at a time, one story at a time. So, uh, but I'm, I'm very glad to be here. I'm just, I'm amazed. I was reading a little bit about the writing process for you. And like, I, I guess intuitively I do this, but it, it's, I mean, the insane, the turnaround time you got on this book. And I presume there are going to be a lot of books to come out of this bubble experience, but you, you, you seem like you're the first to it. Um, I kind of want to circle back to the very beginning of your bubble experience though. What was your thought process when presumably your editor kind of approached you and said, Hey, do you want to do this? Was there some level of, of fear there or, or hesitancy saying, Oh God, I don't know. I don't know if I want to get on a plane right now. I, I don't know how, like, I mean, the, the end result was incredible, but like, I don't know how safe this is going to end up being. Um, or, or were you just immediately in and saying, yeah, this is going to be a once in a lifetime experience? No, a hundred percent. I was nervous. There's no question about it. I mean, I, I was on total lockdown and really almost have been since last March at home. I mean, I've been lucky I can work from home 
And, uh, you know, other than some daily exercise walks, I've been getting all my stuff delivered. I've been just trying to limit my social interactions as much as possible. So the idea of going to a confined environment where, you know, the thought process was, well, all it takes is one, you know, one week link and everybody's going to get sick. I think that was sort of the fear factor coming into it. It was definitely challenging. You know, for me, I was kind of put at ease, really digging into the health and safety protocols and kind of thinking through the logic behind what the NBA was uh, proposing. And that actually took a while to develop. I think that they were, uh, you know, very careful and deliberate in how they put those together. But I think also they didn't want to scare off the players, right? I mean, if you come out with all these crazy rules about there's going to be guards and you can't leave the closed facility, there's no cars, uh, you're not going to have any family members for the fu- first month. If you drop that all on everybody, you know, right off the top, you're probably going to get some people who are saying, wait a minute, this doesn't sound so great. Um, so once the the full protocols came out, I definitely felt more comfortable. And I also just kind of felt like it was a golden ticket. You know, it was very difficult to kind of get access into the bubble. The NBA only let in something like 10 independent media members um, to actually live there. And I was one of the few that stayed there for the full time. So I was there 93 days, 92 nights. And, uh, you know, there were some moments I talk about it in the book. You know, there was one situation where we thought there was potentially a positive test and you know, we're all thinking like, oh, I, I was kind of paranoid saying, do I even get on this shuttle bus to go to the arena? Should I just hide out in my hotel room until this thing passes over? I mean, all those kinds of thoughts were were definitely in your mind. But ultimately, the, the main legacy of the bubble will be that they succeeded in their two main goals, which was crowning a champion, which extended the NBA's run of 74 straight seasons crowning a champion. If they hadn't been able to pull the bubble together that would have been a real black mark in the history books in my eyes. And they also succeeded in generating like a billion dollars in television profit, which was our uh, revenue, which was uh, obviously uh, a major goal for them as well. When you have the season just shut down right in the middle and those checks aren't coming in, you know, everybody goes into a little bit of a financial panic, right? So I think that's the bubble's legacy. They were able to keep everybody safe to accomplish those goals. Of course, it, it wasn't always easy. I mean, we heard a lot of complaining from players. And and certainly, you know, if you want to let me get on this microphone, I'm glad to whine to you. You know, I I put on weight when I was in the bubble. I I didn't sleep very well. There was all sorts of anxiety and and isolation feelings. I mean, it was pretty tough. And I try to capture all those things, the highs and the lows, the challenges, but also the quirks in this book. Yeah. You know, I was kind of, I figured we could kind of go and start from the beginning in a way. Uh, what was it like? You know, I, I just remember from the players, from the the media people that were there, that pretty much everybody sent like the token photo of their hotel room, like on their Twitter or whatever, just like home sweet home. I'm in here for two weeks with no interaction with anybody, you know, and, um, you know, just it, the general, I, I don't know, it just seemed so weird you know what i mean i for lack of a better term it was just so intriguing to see like from the outside while i'm sitting here in my living room it's like oh you know ben goliver and mark stein and all these other guys are just like chilling in this hotel room for two weeks waiting to get to go cover like the nba and be the only people to get to be like in the building seeing these games which was just kind of a wild concept to me what was it like for you like those first you know, you mentioned it, it was kind of isolated and all that. What was it like at the very beginning, like before you even got to to see your peers or any of the players or, you know, anything like that? Well, the first week we were stuck in the hotel room. We couldn't leave for anything except to get a COVID test every morning, like on our, uh, our front porch, right? That was the only social interaction we had. Otherwise, it was a full quarantine in the hotel room. And what I found, you know, you're talking about the videos of the rooms or the or the pictures of the rooms. 
it was insane, the level of interest. I mean, I think I did a little hotel room tour that got like 100,000 views on Twitter, something like that. And it's, you know, the most basic, uh, you know, two bedroom, you know, room that you could ever have seen. But everybody was tuning in to see if we were going to die. I mean, that's really what it felt like. You know, I felt like I was almost, uh, you know, going to a foreign planet, something bad could happen. And there was an awful lot of rubberneckers and gawkers thinking, huh, how is this really going to work out? And there's just a lot of curiosity factor. I remember doing a lot of interviews from, you know, all around the globe, you know, reporters from different countries saying like, you know, is, do you feel safe? You know, they're really kind of trying to push me over the edge a little bit. And so uh, there was a lot of anxiety during that first week. And, and of course, some boredom too. I mean, you're, you're kind of sitting there in your room thinking, you know, I can look out the window, but I can't even crack this window. It doesn't really open up. So I could see people walking around. There's a beautiful lake with a fountain just kind of taunting me, you know, off in the distance. And, you know, ultimately, once we did re- get released, the sensation was, uh, wow, this place is actually really small because they had confined us to an area that was about 0.8 miles in diameter, right? So you can imagine, you know, just take a 12 minute walk around your neighborhood. That's about as far as I could go. Uh, there was, you know, a place to go get food. There was a, a pool. There was about five areas where people were living, almost kind of like college dorms. There was a big parking lot in the back, and that's really all we had access to for about the first month of the experience. And so um, it was, you know, very disorienting not being able to, you know, hop in a car and just drive anywhere. I mean, that was completely off limits, of course. So there was a real adjustment period. But, you know, ultimately what I was excited about was being able to get into the gyms and see these guys up close. I mean, I got my Rihanna moment, my Jack Nicholson moment, sitting courtside at these games, being able to hear the trash talk on the court. Uh, watching these players go through extensive warmups. And of course, there was social distance uh, protocols, but I'll tell you what, you know, I mean, the seats at Staples Center are awesome here in LA for games, but the bubble seats were the best I've ever had. And, and having that kind of unique perspective on a number of high profile players, whether it's LeBron, Anthony Davis, Giannis, um, you know, Kawhi Leonard and James Harden to see how these guys are handling the pressure, handling the experience. And in some cases, that's going great for them. In some cases, teams are completely combusting, you know, like the Philadelphia 76ers or the Houston Rockets or the LA Clippers. And to kind of get to see both sides of that during a very high stress moment like the playoffs was just incredible. So I spent that first week just kind of bouncing around my room, just not, you know, can't wait to get out there and, and cover practices and cover some of these scrimmages and games. All right, we're going to take our first break. Just a reminder, this episode is brought to you by Locker Room. Locker Room is the first social audio platform made for sports fans. The app is free to download, and once you're in, you can talk with me, Gavin, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time about your favorite team or sport. We will be hosting a room for Locked On Knicks once a week, and we we call those Fan Friday, even though uh, we are having it this week. Thursday at 5.30, and that's kind of become our standard time now. But yes, you can finally join in in our conversations that you listen to every day and be part of a weekly episode or episodes of Locked on Knicks. Locker Room is the perfect place to start or join conversations about the league. You'll find fans just like you on Locker Room for watch parties, debates, post-game breakdowns, and of course, reacting to big news or rumors. You'll have the chance to chat again with Gavin and I and might even be featured on Locked on Knicks through our locker room conversations. Thus far, we haven't had a single person that hasn't made the episode. So if you come on and you talk with us, chances are you're going to be on Locked on Knicks that week. And again, be sure to join us this week. We're going to be hosting this week, Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. 
and doing our Fan Friday, which will the episode itself will come out this Friday. So go download the free Locker Room app now, currently available on all iOS devices. Be sure to create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the NBA group for the latest league updates. Follow me at Alex Wolf and Gavin at Gavin Shaw to be notified when our room goes live. I know you don't want to miss it. We're planning to be live this week again Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I can't wait to hear everyone's thoughts on the Knicks. See you all there. Locker room changing the way we talk sports. And today's episode is also brought to you by rockauto.com. With so many different makes and models of cars, I'm sure you've been to one of those brick-and-mortar auto parts stores and you just realize there's no way that they can stock all these parts. There's too many, you know, there's, there's like how many different makes than in each one of those, there's how many different years they've been making cars, then how many different models and everything else. It's a huge mess. If you're trying to go buy a part same day from somewhere, it's just not going to happen. That's where rockauto.com comes in. You can do all the shopping from the comfort of your own home. Go to rockauto.com. You'll be greeted with a super easy to sort through list of all the makes of car that you can order directly to your door without having to make another trip out to the auto parts store to go pick it up. And the price will be the best you can find anywhere. If you want to check out what's available for your car truck, head to rockauto.com right now. And if you decide to get a part, write Locked On in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. And that's it for this ad break. But we do just have to quickly let you guys know, too, you're getting all of the Knicks news and, in this case, the NBA bubble recap news that you need. But if you want to get all the sports news you need in under 20 minutes, check out the Locked On Today podcast. Host Peter Bukowski updates you on the latest news in every major sport with the help of our local experts. Follow the Locked On Today podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get podcasts. And with that, we will continue our discussion with Ben Golliver on the NBA bubble. It seemed like just in real time, you were slowly getting the feeling from reporters inside the bubble um, of, of them grasping the potential of it and just realizing, oh, wait, this is this is a level of access we've never had before. And barring, I mean, hopefully not another pandemic, we, we will never have after and it's kind of this amazing once in a lifetime thing, despite how horrible the circumstances were leading up to it. What was that first moment for you where it sort of dawned on you? Maybe it was just seeing two guys interact on different teams or, or seeing um, players you wouldn't typically expect to, to hang out, like grabbing dinner together, or maybe something one guy says on, on to another guy on the court that you're like, oh, wow, I didn't, I didn't know he would say that. Or, oh, that's an, that's an interesting insight that I wouldn't have heard being 10, 15 feet away. I, I guess, what was, that, what was that first moment for you where you realized, okay, this is a different level of access, and this is something, as, as long as I've covered this league and as in-depth I've covered this league, I've never really seen before. Well, there's a whole bunch that stand out. I mean, the very first moment was I'm, I'm walking bleary-eyed out of my hotel room because I've been stuck in there for a week. And one of the first people I see is Donovan Mitchell, who's an all-star, who's like, hey, welcome to the bubble. It's like, wait a minute, what? Like, are you the tour guide? Like, what's happening here? I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's that small of a campus where you're just kind of running into people like that. So that was certainly, you know, very disorienting. I mean, the the moment that will stick with me more than any others was actually one of the very last moments, which was, you know, LeBron James just absolutely destroying me with a bottle of champagne. You know, it just kind of head to toe soaked during their championship <laughs> celebration. And 
look, I don't blame them. There wasn't too many other people there to kind of celebrate with. So I happened to be standing there with the camera. So I got a pretty, pretty good in the face and, and got pretty wrecked. Um, again, that's not a typical thing that happens, you know, during a normal championship celebration. So I will always remember that title celebration because there's no fans. There's like 200 people in the building. They're all so excited to get out of there. Danny Green's running down the hall saying, we're bleeping free. We're bleeping free. You know, they're just, uh, not only did they win the title, they also got to go home, which was like the, the, you know, the, the two pronged, uh, excitement factor, kind of like uh, college graduation mixed with new year's Eve. Right. Uh, but along the way. You know, in term, terms of some of the basketball moments, it, the tone got set early uh, with, you know, trash talk, basically, you know, and, and teams really trying to be loud on defense. And I think the Lakers went there to try to send a message to almost try to big brother and bully everybody. And so almost any time Anthony Davis is in the post, they're just like screaming out types of food from the sideline, you know, because he's about <laughs> to He's about to eat his defenders up, right? And right. it could have been because they were hungry. You know, the food wasn't great there in the bubble. <laughs> Obviously, the players' food was better than my food. But, I, you know, I just kind of imagined them, like, they're shouting out all the stuff they wish they could be eating in a normal environment, right? But steak and potatoes, all this stuff, they're screaming at these poor defenders who are trying to deal with Anthony Davis. And, you know, it just felt, you know, it felt a lot like Summer League. There was another weird experience. I don't know if you guys remember this. Uh, back during the lockout, uh, a gym in Las Vegas tried to do the lockout league, which was basically have a bunch of NBA players go there. They were going to charge like five bucks a head for tickets and you could just watch these guys go through scrimmages. And some of the first games reminded me a little bit of that lockout league because I remember Kyle Lowry, Tony Allen, these guys back in the day just going after each other at this lockout league. And there was like no media there. And it was such a funny experience. Uh, to see it up close and personal. And that's kind of what it was like during the bubble. Now, as the playoffs advance, you know, there's a lot of cameras there. Obviously, they had a lot of microphones on those courts as well because they tried to design the courts to be sort of like television studios almost um, or television stages. So I I do think some of the really egregious trash talk kind of came back to earth. Guys just didn't want to get caught on camera saying something outrageous. But, um, you know, you saw some moments, uh, Morris Brothers, uh, you know, doing things here and there. Uh, as always, uh, Luca mixing it up uh, with the the Clippers in the playoffs, uh, and then of course Jimmy Butler and LeBron going back and forth in the finals. You know you're in trouble. No, you're in trouble, right? Uh, and and all that stuff was was really fun to watch. Yeah, it, it, in regards to the players, you know, with them being so close quarters like that, and as you said, I mean, I don't know if I fully grasped how tiny the actual bubble was Uh, when you, when you say it was not even a mile in diameter, that kind of puts things in perspective considering a lot of that was probably the two arenas as well. Um, Let let me clarify real quick. So the arenas were off site, And so there was, you basically had to take a charter bus that had like uh, socially distanced seats that had been like wiped down, super clean um, to get back and forth to where the actual arenas were. So the, the original media, um, area was about 0.8 miles. Now, over the course of the bubble, as some of the teams got uh, let, I mean, basically they eliminated and they would go home, they opened up slightly more room for us. So we eventually had like a 1.5 mile uh, oval track that we could sort of walk around for exercise. That was sort of the the boundaries of the property. And so, you know, it's it's August in Orlando. So you can imagine the weather is just absolutely miserable. And you go around this oval track and it's all the grinders. It's Eric Spolstra, Brad Stevens, these guys out there in just this horrible, oppressive heat. 
you know, it was always great because Spolster would have a shirt that said like heat culture across the chest and he wouldn't even be sweating. And it's like 97 degrees outside with (laughs) crazy humidity. So that was sort of the, the, you know, at the end of it, that was the extent of our bounds. But once you got to the gyms, I mean, there was really nowhere to go, right? I mean, none of the, there's no, uh, you know, there's no concessions or anything like that. You just kind of go take your seat and then you hop back on the bus and go home kind of like Groundhog Day. We also want to remind you guys to check out Bet Online. It's the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but the NBA and NHL are in full swing. Bet Online even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Real time updated odds and props, and almost anything you can imagine, Bet Online has you covered for all the new scores and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's absolutely free to sign up. If you head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today, you'll receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. If it's a very big if, use our promo code. Locked on. Bet online. Your online sportsbook experts. All right, we are about to be back with Ben Guy's third and final segment. But we want to remind all of you: if you want to get more analysis on the top prospects available in this year's NBA draft, you can do so with the Locked On NBA Draft podcast. Scouting reports, draft rumors, and mock drafts four days a week from credential draft experts. Follow the Locked On NBA Draft podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get podcasts. So very, very small confines for everybody. You know, I'm sure the players were much more in each other's space than they cared to be, by and large. Um, You know, it certainly seemed like some of them were having a real good time with it. Some of them seemed generally annoyed by the proximity of everybody and being on top of, you know, their their opponents and their teammates and everything else. Uh, I know that, like, Damian Lillard, if I recall, was kind of like... I'm not here to like be buddies with everybody. I'm here to work and play basketball. And then there were other guys that it seemed like were just kind of content to, you know, go around and hang out with everybody. And we're just enjoying the fact that it was almost like a giant all-star weekend in a way um, with a bunch of guys that they wouldn't normally get to see. But throughout all that, was there, were, were there any players that sort of to you stood out as like the most affable, the most, uh, the most popular in this sort of setting. And then were there other ones that sort of just didn't, they seem like fish out of water in this sort of setting. And and I guess the third category of this would be, was there anybody that people suspected of being a snitch hotline dialer that got like cold shouldered or anything? <laughs> I don't know about the snitch hotline stuff. Um, you know, in terms of, it's funny because you were going to look at a lot of this through the lens of the results, right? So I think clearly the king of the bubble was LeBron, and that was true even before the Lakers won the title. But, you know, they had a whole bunch of stars like coming up to sit courtside to watch, you know, like opening night, LeBron and the Lakers are out there against the Clippers and guys like Damian Lillard are just sitting courtside watching the game. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, you know, you could tell who they're guys who really care about basketball because they want to go watch the games as well, even when they're not playing. Uh, but, you know, certainly LeBron drew the biggest crowd from the media standpoint, from his fellow player standpoint and everything else. I'm not sure that means he loved it. I mean, he was also one of the, the loudest complainers, you know, uh, talking about how he was separated from his children halfway across the country. Uh, wasn't with his wife for the first month, obviously, because families weren't allowed until uh, the second round of the playoffs. Uh, but I do think that they were able to find a pretty good rhythm as a team. The Lakers were. You know, I go back to the Clippers and you look at their meltdown. Uh, they were just on such different pages. I mean, you've got Lou Will with the strip club violation. You've got uh, multiple players leaving for funerals, injury issues up and down their roster. 
And then Kawhi and Paul George just seeming like they're always on different pages, whether on the court or off the court as well. I mean, you didn't have that warm sensation of a friendship among the Clippers stars like you did with the Lakers stars. I mean, LeBron and AD were absolutely inseparable. And part of the reason why is because the the filmmakers who did The Last Dance, they showed up about halfway through to film uh, a video documentary footage of, of this Lakers push, right? So you've got these guys kind of hanging out in the hallways after games, cracking jokes in front of the cameras. I mean, they're walking to the bus together every single time. And it was just night and day if you compare it uh, to the Clippers where, you know, everyone's just looking around saying, what is Paul George talking about with some of these post-game quotes? You know, the media members are just sitting there and, you know, Kawhi might come in and say something completely different, you know, two minutes later. So that was probably the most obvious um, contrast. You know, it, it came through in other ways, though. Like the Sixers, for example, when they get, you know, they're in that series against Boston, they get down 2-0. And their, their whole refrain is like, man, we wish we were going back to Philadelphia. We wish we were going home for game three. And it's like, guys, no one's going home. Everybody's stuck here. What are you talking about going home for game three? There's, you know, that's not going to, you can't count on a crowd here to boost you up during the middle of this series. And, you know, ultimately they got swept out, uh, you know, pretty quickly as well. So, um, you know, I tend to look at it, which teams were able to handle the adversity. Those are the ones that got most comfortable. And, and those are the teams that went deepest in the playoffs. Miami and Boston to- deserve great credit for their team chemistry, their continuity. Uh, but even in the case of Boston, you know, there was that, uh, you know, post-game uh, argument with Marcus Smart. And, you know, it got pretty heated with profanities, you know, during the Eastern Conference Finals because the bubble would just wear on you. And same thing with uh, with Denver. You know, I think guys like Jokic and Murray, they probably have the reputation maybe of being a little bit, quote unquote, boring, um, you know, not necessarily the biggest personalities. And, and they really settled into the the bubble quite nicely and went on a great run, uh, kept, you know, they had plenty of chances to go home. They won six straight elimination games. And think about that. It's not just like you get to go on vacation, but you get to leave Disney World after like a month and a half or two months. It's such a big prize and a lot of these teams would fold when they get to the elimination games and Denver just kept coming back for more. So I always said like Murray to me was the MVP, the most bubble player. He was so serious and he was so sincere with his um, his activism in terms of you know honoring Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake, and he was so good on the court and he was channeling his pain in a lot of those games. You could tell with some of his tearful post game interviews, um, and yet he was so mentally focused. I mean, you could see him meditating, calming himself before games, and and going through all those kinds of uh, routines to get himself right. I just think he understood the the lighter side of the bubble um, and, and trying to have fun on the court while also representing you know the challenges too. Ben, what was what was your signature kind of peek behind the curtain moment? And, and by that I mean just maybe it's it was hearing players talk about what they really think about each other, or like like a player mentioning like you know this guy doesn't get a lot of hype in the media, but but he's he's pretty dirty or, or maybe coaches saying something about a player you didn't really expect, but maybe just like, like a certain, I don't know, just something you wouldn't have heard outside of the bubble. Well, I think the biggest peak behind everything was when the Bucks had their shutdown, um, when they decided not to take the court because of, uh, you know, the Jacob Blake shooting by police. You know, I, I get to the arena, I look up on the court, I've been covering games since 2007 and it dawns on me, Hey, this is the first time, there's only one team on the court. Something seems a little bit fishy. You know, finally my like uh, my radar went off a little bit. Hey, huh, what's going on here? 
So I, I look to my right and I talk to one of the NBA's executives who's kind of in the char- in charge of operations for games. And I say, well, what are we looking at here? Is this a forfeit? Um, you know, because I assumed or, or suspected it might be a boycott situation because of all the comments that had been leading up uh, to that day. And this guy's very high ranking official for the NBA. He looks at me. He's like, I have no idea. We've never been here before. And I was like, oh, boy, this is going to be a little bit different. So I took a lap around the arena, walked down towards the Orlando Magic locker room. Uh, and I could kind of peek in their locker room and I could see Vucevic's face and he's just like, what the heck is going on? He's standing there with his hands on his shoulders and he's as confused as I am. And I'm like, oh boy, uh, this is about to be big, big, big news. And at that point, it still wasn't totally clear, you know, what the Bucks were doing, why they hadn't taken the court. They hadn't making any statement or confirmed what they were doing. So I kind of kept walking down the hallway, just trying to be a snoop basically like, Hey, what's going on here? run into a bunch of NBA officials and they're like, you can't be here. You've got to go stand over there. I mean, they're getting a little bit panicky. So I'm like, oh, okay, this is, uh, you know, this is about to, everything's about to hit the fan basically. And you, know, you kind of keep walking, get down to that Bucks locker room and uh, you know, it's very eerily quiet, but as time develops, uh, you know, you could start to hear some speakerphone conversations. Clearly they were talking to someone and we found out later it was Jacob Blake's father. And then we also found out later it was some politicians back in Wisconsin. And you could tell they hadn't completely planned this thing out perfectly because they were in the locker room for hours, I think, trying to determine what they wanted to say publicly. And there was no bathroom in the locker room. So we're all standing there just kind of like waiting for them to come out and give a statement. And slowly, one by one, the players would kind of, uh, you know, come out, not want to make eye contact, go use the restroom down the hall and then walk right, uh, you know, right by us, not saying a word, go back in the locker room and, and to finish up their meeting. It was just such a surreal experience. I mean, these guys were on the front page of every single paper in the country. They were leading the major national news. Um, they were drawing comparisons to like the 1968 Olympics. Um, you know, I remember AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, tweeting my story, talking about what a huge moment this was for the you know, labor rights and labor activism. And here are the Bucks in a situation where like, they're kind of making it up on the fly or, or coming up with what they want to say in real time. And, you know, they hadn't considered that maybe they they needed to have a bathroom <laughs> because uh, uh, this thing could drag on for a while. So it was kind of a standoff. It was an old school standoff. And, uh, you know, it lasted for, you know, three something hours before they finally came out and gave a, a really heartfelt speech and, and really carefully crafted statement. And then the question was, well, what now? Does this whole thing shut down over the next 72 hours? And, you know, that period got very tense. Um I think Chris Paul and LeBron have talked about how they called Obama for help at that point to come up with how the they should put the bubble back together and and not risk the entire playoffs. So, you know, some moments like that I will never forget. I mean, to me, that's the most memorable first round playoff game I've ever been into in my life, and it will be forever. And it was the one game that wasn't played. So, you know, it's funny that was actually one of the next things that I wanted to get into here. Uh, was you know the Bucks strike and the you know everything that that became of that? The NBA also made a really big deal, you know, in, in the wake of all of the the killings by police that came to light last year um, after the the Floyd murder and everything. Just like to put that front and center, and that was sort of one of their ways of saying like. You know, a lot of players were kind of pushing back when the NBA was initially saying, hey, we want to resume play. We want to crown a champion. We want to do this. We want to do that. We want to do a bubble. A lot of players kind of pushed back and were like, 
I don't want to leave my community right now. Like we're fighting for something bigger. And the NBA really made a push to say, no, we're we're in full support of that. We want to help you spread the message that you want to spread. Um, And we want to, you know, use this bubble to, to do that. And they, you know, they obviously they put black lives matter on the court, which was a big deal ruffled some right wing feathers uh, by putting that on a court. Pretty simple statement. Don't quite get that. But at any rate, what was kind of your assessment? I mean, just you personally, or or you could say, you know, what the general feeling was in the bubble too, but how did you feel about how the NBA handled that? Um, How do you think the players kind of felt about the, the NBA's initiative? Because even, even once things started in the bubble, there was some criticism still from some players about like, Oh, this is, you know, it's too corporate. Um, you know, it, it it doesn't feel like, I don't want to say it doesn't feel genuine, but you know what I mean? Like just that it felt like it was kind of being buried in favor of basketball and they wanted the social issues to be front and center rather than the basketball. I mean, it was a very, very tricky situation. So what was kind of your read on all that throughout the bubble and, you know, just kind of your opinions on how that all played out? No, it was a major story for sure, starting with Kyrie Irving, you know, before everybody got down there saying, hey, like, we shouldn't even go. That's the real statement, right? Let's just uh, basically, uh, you know, stay home and, you know, don't agree to have a whole, you know, predominantly black players go down to Disney World, live in confinement and play for the, you know, behest of predominantly white owners and governors. I mean, I, I think that, it was a very tricky situation. Ultimately, they reached the conclusion, the players did, that their interests would be best served on the activism front if they were all down there together. And they reached that conclusion twice, once before the bubble started, you know, in kind of response to Kyrie's uh, statement. And a lot of it was financial as well. Players like Damian Lillard talked about how important it is for them to be able to have money to support their communities and to support initiatives they care about. And that was all at stake here as well, you know, in terms of, you know, do they have to use a force majeure clause in the collective bargaining agreement if they just didn't go down to the bubble and write a whole new collective bargaining agreement and scrap every contract that's already been agreed to? I mean, that was sort of looming as a nuclear option. So the players didn't have a ton of leverage in these conversations. And I think what they were smart about is focusing on this idea of unity. When you get down there, do the pregame uh, kneeling protest. That's guaranteed to draw awareness to the cause. Put together the videos, wear the jersey slogans, which I do understand rub people some people the wrong way. But I think ultimately th- those were a net win because it got people talking as well. And then also just constantly bring up these issues in their uh, pregame and postgame comments. I mean, I always say LeBron was the number one name in the bubble. The number two name was Breonna Taylor. I mean, these players were very serious about uh, campaigning on her family's behalf and, and doing whatever they possibly could to raise awareness. And I think you're seeing it this year as well. I mean, this season with the media all spread out, you know, in so many different spots, the teams all spread out and everything being done virtually. I'm not sure that their activism has necessarily broken through to the same degree that it did during the bubble. And I do think the fact that there was a presidential election going on and these guys were all very focused on voting rights, um, you know, wound up really playing to their benefit as well, because there was just more eyeballs on what they were talking about at that moment. It was a very charged um, situation. So I think when you look back at how they put the, the bubble back together and when they decided for the second time, hey, we're better off unified, 
look what they came up with. I mean, the voting access at the arenas to me was a genius move, right? It's this idea of like, hey, let's turn all these arenas that aren't being used into voting stations in, in NBA communities. And you go look at, look back at the swing states of the 2020 election, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, uh, Georgia. I mean, all of those had huge uh, grassroots efforts by NBA players to get out the vote and had players who were really outspoken um, you know, on those issues as well. So I would say that they absolutely made a mark. It shouldn't be uh, understated or, or brushed off at all. And, you know, I think that their frustration was they could talk about it all day long and that's not going to stop the next shooting. Right. And I think that's a, a, a wider societal frustration. And so what they had to conter- come to terms with is how can we make a tangible difference here in the short term? And I thought their, their focus on the voting effort um, was you know really a stroke of genius, um, and I think it paid off big time. I, I know you you mentioned LeBron a couple of times, but what player Ben relative to expectations impressed you the most? And that could be um, on the court, off the court. I, I know there were names like Jalen Brown and Malcolm Brogdon who who really stood out to me just in how eloquent they were talking about all these issues. And I mean the the depth of knowledge while, while also simultaneously saying rightfully at the end of the day like where our, our full-time job is basketball and, and we're, we're going to make all the difference in the world that we possibly can with that and, and leverage that position as much as possible. But also this is, this is ultimately on society as a whole. Um, and, and then also maybe, I mean, if we want to want to bring it back to basketball itself, just in a, in a basketball sense, someone who you were like, wow, I didn't realize how good this guy was until I was literally watching courtside every day. Well, I would say from a spokesman standpoint, you know, the, the loudest and clearest voices were guys like Jalen Brown uh, Tobias Harris, LeBron James, for sure. The guy who I came away the most impressed with was actually Chris Paul. Uh, as president of the Players Association, I mean, he is juggling so many egos, you know, so many varied interests. He's ha- constantly, you know, going back and forth, interfacing with uh, the union leadership, Michelle Roberts, but also superstar level players, rank and file players, you know, veteran minimum players, rookie deal players. I mean, all these guys have different stakes, right? And ultimately, like he's kind of the face of the organization. He has to pull it all together. And this, the bubble could have very easily never happened if the players couldn't have got on board together and the superstars hadn't had buy-in. And it also could have easily blown up if they hadn't been able to kind of set aside their emotions after the Bucks protest and get back to the idea of trying to finish the thing off. Chris Paul was completely instrumental in all of that. And he just does it quietly. You know, he's not necessarily the loudest person, but he's just a master. And if you want to call him a politician, that's fine too. But I think he's just a master leader on and off the court. And just think, I mean, he's in like 72 hours of meetings with owners and fellow players and, you know, trying to juggle all these uh, emotions. And then he's got to go out and play playoff games against the team in the Houston Rockets that traded him for Russell Westbrook like eight months uh, earlier. So there's all these uh, emotions built into that as well. I just don't know how he compartmentalized it. Um, you know, to me, I-, I thought that he just emerged as one of the, the best leadership voices. And I mean, by the way, he had a-, a really nice run in the bubble too. And he's had a- an amazing run for the Phoenix Suns this season, um, still operating at an all NBA level for me, you know, at, at age 35, at-, at this stage of his career, it's just unbelievable. So I, I think he's probably the person other than LeBron, because, you know, they had the deepest run. And so I got to see the Lakers play kind of more than everybody other than LeBron in terms of being impressed by kind of like the proximity to greatness. I think it's just maybe a different flavor of greatness for Chris Paul. But, um, you know, certainly he plays a big role in this book. So to go a little more big picture, 
uh, you know, there's there was so much talk about like the empty gym effect on the bubble and how that led to some of the like otherworldly uh, scoring performances. You had like obviously that that series between Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray where they showed the stat where it was like, I, I think it was uh, 50 plus point playoff games. Uh, and it was like, like Jordan Iverson, uh, Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray. And those two had done it in the same series. And it was just kind of insane. Um, or maybe it was 60 point playoff games. That that sounds more right to me. At any rate, I remember there was one, there was one stat and one graphic that is just like burned into my brain where Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell were standing next to Michael Jordan and Allen Iverson. Um, but there was also, you already alluded to, there was no home or road games. So there was none of that home court advantage that you normally get in the playoffs. Uh, none of that atmosphere. None of the, uh, none of the inherent intensity that comes with like a giant crowd screaming their guts out. Um, you know, the, the players were tasked with creating their own intensity, creating their own cheering you know, they got to have their families and stuff there later in the playoffs. But for, you know, a large period of time, there wasn't even, you know, family members there to cheer you on. It, it just how do you think in the grand scheme of things that this bubble, I don't want to call it a bubble season, bubble end of season and postseason will be viewed in history? And how do you think it should be viewed in history? Like, I know some people, even as quickly as the end of it, were saying, okay, this was cool, but like this almost deserves an asterisk. This was like so unprecedented for how everything went. Um, a lot of the players mentioned, you know, you would think this would be easier, but this is probably the hardest, you know, stretch of games I've ever had to go through in my life. I, it just what is your, what's your general thought on how history is going to view this? Like how we'll look back maybe 10 years from now and look at the bubble. Like, is it going to be like, Oh, that was, that was incredibly hard. Is it going to be, it was easier for guys to succeed because of the empty gym thing. I, you know, and the no home games, no road games, it kind of leveled the playing field a little bit in a weird way. I don't, I don't know. I guess, you know, it's, it's a lot to unpack, but sort of what's your thought on like the legacy of the bubble. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was to create a time capsule, right? Because I do think that we're going to look back as more time passes and be like, God, that was crazy that that happened. And I also think 2020 is going to wind up being one of the most important years in NBA history, right up there with like magic come into the NBA in the early 80s, 92 dream team, uh, you know, 2003 with LeBron. I think it's going to become a tent post year for the league because you had the China controversy with Hong Kong. You had Kobe Bryant's death. You had David Stern's death. You have the pandemic shutting down the season in the middle of it. And then you have this wacky bubble coming to kind of save the day. And, you know, to me, I was, you know, kind of skeptical heading into the bubble. Would this be treated like a normal title by fans and, and by people down the road? And I think when you look at the Lakers relative dominance compared to the competition. I mean, I think they went 16 and six through the bubble. They had the two best players consistently throughout the bubble. Um, you know, in some of those cases, they really just wiped their opponents off the court. It's hard to say that like, oh yeah, these conditions were like, you know, influencing the Lakers somehow to, uh, you know, to their benefit. I mean, ultimately like they would have had home court advantage and, and they didn't. Um, you know, they had to live, you know, 3000 miles away from home and, you know, some teams were, you know, living much closer than that, uh, you know, to Orlando. So I, I thought that they survived the asterisk talk for sure. To me, the, the biggest difference 
was just the lack of travel. And for me, it was awesome because I got to see every single playoff game from the second round on. There was just too many playoff games to go to in the first round to kind of be in both gyms at once. But, um, you know, that's something that I will never forget. And I think it just, you know, I wish I could do that every single year. And it actually got me excited. Like I would love to see a single site NBA finals sort of like a Super Bowl where we just all go to some city for two weeks and it turns into this big celebration of the sport. That'd be kind of cool. And I wouldn't, you know, I would be in favor of that if they ever decided to do that, you know, say five, 10 years down the road, um, just because the lack of travel I did think really helped improve the quality of basketball. It helped hot players stay hot. Um, I think it favored the shooters as well. Um, but the empty gyms part was definitely the eeriest aspect to it. Uh, there's no way around it. I mean, LeBron came out and said in March, you know, I don't want to play if there's no fans in the stands. And of course, that quote didn't hold up very well. I mean, it was pretty much obsolete within about 72 hours. Um, but that part will, will always be different. And it's been d- different this season, too. Um, I'm not sure how you get around that. You know, I, I don't think you can just say, oh, titles and games don't count because there was a pandemic. You know, I think that, uh, you know, we've seen players adjust to it. We saw them adjust to it kind of mid midway through the bubble. It, it, there was probably a, a feeling out process for the first couple of weeks. And then, you know, at that point, uh, you know, it really just became everybody's focus was on basketball and um, they weren't, you know, as concerned or distracted by the the weird surroundings. So to me, the the title should be viewed as legitimate. Um, you know, I think, you know, had there been, you know, the, the trickiest part was that there were some, you know, unti- uh, untimely injuries, like, you know, for the Miami Heat, for example, or Giannis uh, with his injury, but that happens in every single playoffs and it's happening again this season outside the bubble. Uh, so to me, I, I would say uh, people should view this as one of the weirdest and most challenging chapters in NBA history, but also as a big time business success story. Had they not succeeded in crowning the champion, like I mentioned earlier, that would be the first time in league history. And, uh, you know, I think that we would view that alternative way worse than we view what we got down there at Disney World. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up with Ben right there because that is the culmination of all the bubble talk. We really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know it was it was pretty cool for me to get that type of insight from Ben. But later this week, we'll be back with Ben. And maybe maybe this is even more enticing to some of you. We were talking all Knicks. We were getting a national media perspective on the team, what Ben thinks about the coverage of the Knicks, whether it's been fair, whether they've gotten, I mean, just enough of it in terms of volume. And uh, we, we get a little bit into the team's future. What does he think about Julius Randle? Is he a legitimate building block? Is he having a once-in-a-lifetime season? How about R.J. Barrett? Is he a second banana? Is he someone the Knicks would maybe even trade for help down the road? And what are the Knicks ultimately going to do this offseason? And if you really want some juicy stuff, Ben is going to tell us the one star he thinks the Knicks have a legit chance at this free agency, and he would love to see them go after all that and more next time on Locked on Knicks.